Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. This week, we're going to talk about Connecticut's rivers and the fact that they're actually pretty gross. Now, they look beautiful on the surface, I'll grant you that, but you can't drink the water, you shouldn't swim in many of them, and there are restrictions on eating fish in most of them. In shorts, they're still recovering from our massive mistreatment of them for centuries. But the good news is they are recovering. And our guest today, Bill Devlin, noted Danbury historian as well as avid environmentalist and conservationist, knows the story of how this turnaround began and how Connecticut, believe it or not, set the tone for the entire country in this department. We'll have him in just a second. This week's trivia question, what's 11 miles long, 2 miles wide, worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and used to churn out tobacco? We'll have the answer for you after the main program. Coming up, thanks Connecticut for cleaning up U.S. rivers. Who doesn't love the look and sound of a beautiful flowing river through the Connecticut countryside? I know I sure do. Well, back in the 18 and 1900s, we combined the disposal of our sewage waste and our industrial waste to create a river network in Connecticut that was almost beyond repair. Rivers literally smelled putrid, particularly during those low-flow summer months when sewage would lay stagnant in the waterways. And this wasn't just a problem in Connecticut. It was a problem throughout the entire young nation as we practice that philosophy of out of sight, out of mind, figuring that this vast land and the large rivers and oceans could absorb whatever we threw their way. Well, we were wrong, and Connecticut, to its credit, took the lead in starting to turn all this around. Our guest today has researched and written on this subject extensively. Bill Devlin is no stranger to Amazing Tales C-Team. We've been fortunate enough to have him here several times before. And today he's going to share with us his insights and learnings, the ones he's garnered from his examination of this topic. The term aquifer, from what I've understood, was actually defined in the 1800s. We knew there were underground rocks that contained water, but it would be a stretch to say we understood ecosystems, right? Absolutely, yeah. So what what was it like? I mean, you've done a lot of research in this area. Was it only really the really aware folks who understood what we were doing to the environment, or did everybody kind of get it and just said, well, what else are we going to do? Primarily, people were used to using streams as utilitarian objects. People fished in them, they used them for water power, and they also dumped things in them, and that was very common. Connecticut has a lot of streams. There's a statistic called stream density, where you measure the length of all the different streams in the state against the number of square miles, and Connecticut has one of the highest in the Northeast. There's a lot of water here, <laughs> and the water was very important, for, especially for power. During the Industrial Revolution, of course, everything started going over to steam, but the ethic of using the streams for waste disposal continued. It was a custom that just went on and on and on. The health part of it comes in because there were outhouses located right on streams at some points. People were dumping things from factories in there, whatever was nearby. And there usually was some kind of water source nearby a factory. There was an old saying that the solution to pollution is dilution. And people would throw stuff into the ocean, they would throw it into uh, streams, and it would go away. And so out of sight, out of mind. And that's kind of how we operated, wasn't it? 
There was obviously the regular household waste. There were old barrels and old objects that you were through with, or even dead dead animals that people used to throw in streams. It's a great little uh, piece in the newspaper about how Danbury tried to clean up this one spot right in the downtown area where people were throwing stuff continually. And they cleaned it up, and it lasted about 10 days before all these people started dumping stuff again. So it was, you know, it was an ingrained custom. Well, we, we have the same feeling today about when people pick up the garbage. The garbage gone. Who knows where it went, you know, but it's gone. We got rid of it. We have another situation where people used to be able to tell what color hats were being made by what color the Still River was in Danbury. I've heard that story many times. Yeah. Tr- truth to that? Truth to that, yeah. I can remember seeing it um, myself in the, even in the, as late as the 70s. This odd shade of um, like purple. <laughs> so when the hat factory was still operating, then there's only one at that point. But um, yeah, common. Most of the dyes that were used in the 19th century were black. That was another thing that was making the river black. Factories would empty their, their dye vats once a week. You know, at that point, the river would turn a different color. And in addition to that, there was all kinds of other waste. There's a great story from one of the newspapers from the 19th century that, about paper mills and how they would release their chemicals twice a year, and there would be a massive fish kill, and people would go out and grab the fish that had died, you know? <laughs> the newspaper said, I don't know why anybody would want to eat those, but, <laughs> you know, it was a common thing. Well, to this day, we have bans on what you can, what you're supposed to eat. Get me out of the Housatonic River, thanks to pollution from a famous corporation up uh, state in New York. And we don't really, I think, stop to think about that often enough. If you're driving Route 7 and going by the Housatonic River or Route 8 and going by the Naugatuck River, and you look and you say, oh, that looks beautiful, that's gorgeous. And you don't really stop to think what's been in there over the years, do you? Some of the rivers you can see that, but the Housatonic you can't. It's a fast-running river and it's got a lot of volume. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is in the bottom sediments. We understand this now, but people didn't then. Stuff collects in the bottom sediments, and there's recently a guy who, a professor from Wesleyan, did a study along with his students about mercury pollution from, you know, the hat factories in Danbury. And they found, you know, it's still in there. This is like, it's going on to 70 years since the many of the hat factories closed. And I think whatever supplies of mercury they had on hand, I think were dumped into the river at that point. You know, some of the mercury residually in the, in the water supply that was being dumped in the river was continuously getting in there. And it moves over time. Now, this was a problem throughout the state because as the Industrial Revolution continued, obviously everybody was near a river. They wanted the river for processed water. They needed the water even for drinking for their, their, their workers, but then they used it to get rid of their effluent out the backside. And so you have a situation where this is happening around the state. The state's getting more and more polluted, and this isn't all that's happening. It's not just the industrial, as we started to talk about. There was also sewage. And, you know, when you're in a, on a farm by yourself in a rural setting, you can kind of handle that yourself. But once you started getting into the cities, I think you had a great statistic in your article about in 1900, half the population was living in 13 cities. What did that do for waste disposal? People were relying on cesspools or they were relying on outhouses like they had on the farms. Their theory of disease at that point was rooted in miasmas. Miasma means bad air. 
So if you had something smelly, something that smelled bad, there's a chance that you were going to catch a disease from that, which is one reason why you don't see a lot of older homes too close to rivers and streams, because they were, or swamps rather, because that would be a source of bad odors or bad, bad air. So there was a concern there, but what really kind of threw things off was people got concerned about where are you going to get water for all these folks? By the 1880s, the, uh, even before that for the larger cities, like New Haven and Hartford, the rivers are so polluted that they can't be used for water supply. Scientists knew there was a thing called an aquifer, but they didn't know how to deal with it. So the, the way to deal with it was to bring in water from distant areas, from clean ponds up in, in a rural area near a city. That was fine, except that there was no separation between uh, where a cesspool was and where a well was until much later, until the 1890s, early 1900s. People even didn't even start thinking about that. So when you have all this water going to the ground, then you have, you have a problem. And one disease that people knew about that they were having a big problem with was typhoid fever in Connecticut. A lot of cities, they had problems with cholera, but that was not a big thing in Connecticut. Typhoid fever was. One year in uh, 1865, it was responsible for 8% of the deaths in the whole state. And people had gotten aware of the idea that disease and germs were causing these problems, right? This had suddenly come into the consciousness, at least of the medical community. Yeah, the medical community adopted the germ theory about the mid-1880s. And this is about the time that the smaller industrial cities around the state are mushrooming, you know, like Danbury and Meriden, Naugatuck and Waterbury and and Winstead, all these towns are turning into cities. There's a number of diseases that they were looking to try to ameliorate. Typhoid fever was an easy one, because if you create a sewage system, you reduce the chance of pollution, of standing water with pollution in it that people are going to get disease from. This was a major thing, but this was only among the, like the State Board of Health, the more advanced doctors. Most people still believed in the miasma thing. Big cities like Hartford and New Haven had already built sewage systems that actually emptied into rivers, of course, or into Long Island Sound. That wasn't a big problem because the bodies of water were so big. But when cities like Meriden and Danbury and Winston and Waterbury and all the rest, inland cities which have small streams or sluggish streams or um, shallow streams start to think about where they're going to empty it, they're going to have a problem. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Now, in those early days, these sewage systems are gravity-fed. So they had to design this in, an, in a way that probably led to some standing stagnant water, too. Yeah, and they didn't understand treatment. The idea of treatment was in its infancy, and all they really knew how to do from experiments in Europe and other places was a big a sand filter. So you'd build these beds, and it would at least take the solids out of it. That was it. So you're not removing the odors. You're not removing a lot of the effluent, but at least you're getting some treatment there. There's a plant there that can be built upon and expanded over time, although they didn't understand that. Now, we're getting into a situation at this point in history where if you live downstream from where this sewage pipe was coming out, it was god-awful. And you not only did you have the fact that raw sewage is coming by or maybe sand-filtered, treated sewage is coming by, but the odor during low-flow periods was remarkably pungent. It was horrible. And uh, there's several lawsuits from Danbury over the years 
regarding all this. There's a great story. I only heard it once, and I heard it from a Brookfield resident. In one of the lawsuits in either the 1930s or 40s, there's a story about a farmer who brought a truckload of manure to the city hall steps in Danbury and dumped it there and said, you've been doing this to us long enough. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> now back to the legal side of this. <laughs> New Britain, I guess, got the head start in, if I have my facts right, 1891 or thereabouts, and they filed a suit. New Britain actually was doing the polluting, and a Newington gentleman filed suit in 1891. Tell us uh, what happened there. Like I said, there was like New Britain, Danbury, Waterbury, Winstead, all these towns were building sewage systems that are going to go into very small streams. And Piper's Brook in New Britain is a small stream. A downstream property owner who lived in Newington fronted a larger group of farmers who filed suit against New Britain. And again, they're users of the water. The particular guy who filed the suit had a mill, and he found that he could not use the water from it anymore. Under the what's called the riparian rights, which is that people who are using a common resource like water, People up uh, downstream have an equal right to people upstream for the use of it that's reasonable and fair. This was the first time when a judge and uh, a court in Connecticut ruled it was unreasonable that the city of New Britain can dump its sewage into Piper's Brook. That left New Britain with a big problem, but they eventually ended up paying out settlement money to approximately 10% of the people in Newington, the households anyway. But they ended up trying to figure out a place where they could build a treatment plant. And they ended up going to Berlin, which is uh, south of uh, the city of New Britain, and was actually the the original town that New Britain was a part of. That created problems there, plus where they were going to dump the treated water from the sewage plant led to another lawsuit from Middleton, the city of Middletown. And they ended up spending over a million dollars, which in today's money would be if, you know, beyond $20 million. This kind of led to a wave of lawsuits across the state. Danbury, um, uh, Waterbury, all these places, there, there were lawsuits filed that made it to the Connecticut Supreme Court. People were not taking this passively. They weren't lying down and accepting that everything was going to be polluted. We used to be able to use these rivers for fishing and for livestock and things like that, and you couldn't use them anymore. The livestock would come down with rashes, they'd get sick, people would eat fish from the river, they'd get sick. It was denying a resource. The big industrialists and the cities were abusing a resource. Let's drill down a little bit into the Danbury lawsuit, because if I understand the ruling right there, it went a little bit further and really set a standard and a precedent that went on from there. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. The Danbury case was actually the key one and the biggest one. What had happened was... One of the mill owners in the Beaverbrook section, which is downstream of the uh, outfall sewer pipe, had filed suit, and he was joined by a number of other people. And then they lined up farmers all the way into the Brookfield, which goes to the north. And they had a 70 plaintiffs in this lawsuit against the city of Danbury for dumping sewage. It's important to remember that all this time, nobody's doing anything about industrial waste. So as a matter of fact, one of the people I kind of centered on the articles I wrote is um, George MacArthur, who actually tried to sue the city of Danbury over industrial waste, the hat manufacturers. And they just kind of settled with him, and they got him some, got him a different water source to use. Because he was making paper for um, kind of wrapping paper, and he was not able to do that anymore. 
because the water was so bad. And as people were falling sick as they, if they left a window open in the place, there was a lot of outrage over this. And the judge ruled totally against the city of Danbury, which knew this was going to happen. They decided that rather than build a treatment plant, which they thought was going to be pretty expensive, because uh, they brought in experts from all over the country, and they had advised them to build this treatment plant, and it was going to cost a quarter of a million dollars. So the city did not choose to do that, chose to just take their chances, and they took their chances, and in the court they lost. They were ordered to build a sewage treatment plant. It was only the second one built, third one built in the state of Connecticut. But the odors from that treatment plant led to further lawsuits down the line. That was the kind of the legal foundation for a lot of the stuff that happens later in the state as far as doing something about pollution. And the reason why this is so important and to finish off on sort of a positive note here is that as bad as this was, and it was horrible, they turned it around. If you could just give us a summary of what happened after this. State Board of Health kept trying to get the legislature to give them jurisdiction over streams so they could do something about it, and the legislature was unwilling to do this. It took until the 1920s and a lot of lobbying by sportsmen's groups, people who wanted to use these middle-class people and, and upper-class people who wanted to be able to use the streams again for fishing and for boating and things like that, and they couldn't. And this includes Long Island Sound, which had gone pretty polluted too. It killed off a whole industry of oystering. It took until the 1920s before the state was willing to do something, and they created a water resources board, which eventually got a lot of cities sewered, and uh, some of the industrial waste cleaned up. So by the mid-1960s, the state's starting to at least get somewhere. In the mid-1960s, our governor was John Dempsey, who's the only immigrant governor that Connecticut has ever had. And he was born in a town in Tipperary, decided to go back there in 1965 for a trip. And uh, he went fishing in the local river, and he caught a couple of salmon. And he thought to himself, why can't Connecticut's rivers be like this? We used to have salmon. We used to have shad runs. So he launched the uh, study committee that led to a Clean Water Act that was passed in 1967, and it set up a rating system for the cleanliness of waters. And that system became the basis for the Federal Clean Water Act, which was passed about five years later. up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. Next time you pass over one of the hundreds of rivers in the state, the Connecticut River, the Thames, the Niantic, the Quinnipiac, the Housatonic, the Mianus, just remember how important they are to the well-being of our health and the state's economy, not to mention how beautiful they are. I want to thank our guest for today's program, Bill Devlin, noted Danbury historian and an expert on the court cases that got Connecticut Rivers on the road to cleanup recovery. On the answer to this week's trivia question, first the question, what's 11 miles long, 2 miles wide, worth well over $100 million, and used to churn out tobacco? The answer is Candlewood Lake, 
It's the largest lake in Connecticut, and it was created by the flooding of tobacco farms a hundred years ago. And wait until you hear the story next week behind its unbelievable creation. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Stay healthy.